0: Have you ever found yourself um, listening to someone telling a story, and then they interrupt their own story arc to take you down this detail drenched rabbit trail? And as you go down the detail drenched rabbit trail, you find yourself getting lost. You can't remember what the story was about or where it was going, and you, just, you find yourself thinking, get to the point. You know, if, you know, you've experienced that. We've all done that, too. We've been that person. Uh, or maybe somebody says to you, oh, this thing happened to me. It was hilarious, and you wait for them to tell you what was hilarious, but then they start with this incredible, you know, unexpected backstory, and as they're working their way uh, toward it, it's like a tale of two cities situation, as they're setting the mood and the tone, and and you're wondering, where is this thing going, right? Or maybe you've been in church, and the preacher, he always starts his sermons with analogies and metaphors or or allegories and, the, and he's and and every week it's the same thing he begins to uh, you know kind of spin this narrative to help you contextualize you orient you to the text that you're about to read and you're you're wondering where is this going you know like right now what is happening mark chapter one and two we're going to read some excerpts today and the gospel of mark is a book that is written that gets right to the point I mean, he just gets right to the point so fast. That's his writing style. You're not wondering, where is it going? It's not dragging out. In fact, in the first two chapters of Mark, the author uses the word immediately 11 times. Immediately, 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 immediately. And it's really incredible. And um, he doesn't do that to drag us quickly through the life of Christ so the listener doesn't fall asleep. He uses the word immediately to reveal the power of Christ in order to wake the listeners up. So let's take a moment and experience this as we read some excerpts from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed Jesus. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and the spirit cried out, "What have you do with, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God." But Jesus rebuked him, saying, "Be silent, Come out of him." And the unclean spirit convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice and came out of him, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. Verse 32. That evening at sundown they brought to Jesus all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Verse 40. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him, and he said to him, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Chapter 2 and verse 1. And again, Jesus entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. And immediately, Many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And Jesus preached the word to them. And then there came to him a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not get near to Jesus because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken through, they let down the paralytic on the bed in which he was lying. Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" And some of the scribes were sitting there, and they reasoned in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God himself? But immediately, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had reasoned within themselves. And he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus turned and he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose and he took up his bed and he went out in the presence of them all. So they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. Now there is a tremendous rhythm of grace that's actually playing out in the first two chapters of Mark here. Right out of the gate in chapter 1, we're given Jesus' identity as a divine king. And then Jesus claims to be a divine king. And then he goes on to demonstrate his power and authority to authenticate his claims. Now, first let's look at how the king of grace comes and calls his disciples. And how, by extension, the king of grace comes and calls you, comes and calls me. In chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, that's where we began, and we find that Jesus is calling his disciples. And immediately they drop everything and they follow him. Why do they do that? They leave the, they leave the nets in the boat. They leave the family. They, leave their, they just drop everything and they go, why do they do that? Well, in the ancient education system of uh, the Jewish culture, there are three schools. And uh, if the little guys, grades, you know, are ages 6 to 10. They went to the school of Beb Sefer. And that was where you became literate. You read the Torah, you learned the Torah, you memorized the Torah. Torah is Hebrew for law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. So they'd go to Bev Sefer, become literate. If they had shown enough literacy and competency, they could move on to the next school, which is kind of for 10 to 15-year-olds. And that school is uh, Bev Midrash. And And Bev Midrash, it translates the house of learning. Bev Sefer is the house of the book, and then you'd move on to the house of learning. And in the house of the book, you're just reciting things by route. But in the house of learning, you had to demonstrate you understood the Torah. So you would demonstrate your understanding of the Torah by being able to kind of explain how you would apply it, and you would ask questions. That's why when Jesus was 12, he blew everybody's minds in the Bev Midrash as he was explaining that he wasn't just reciting back the Torah, but he actually was with authority asking these questions, blowing everybody's minds. And after that, you'd move on to the third school, which is kind of like getting your PhD, which is the school of uh, uh, Bev Talmud. And the Bev Talmud was where you would come under the apprenticeship of a rabbi, and you would follow the rabbi, and they had a terminology being covered in the dust of your rabbi. It was a life of imitation. Now, the reason I say that is because most little boys never went the whole never went the distance most little boys never got out of the first never got past the first school and so here's how here's how it worked here's why they dropped their nets rabbis didn't come to you you went to the rabbi that's how the education system worked and if you impressed them with your education if they accepted you you'd enter into this life of imitation if you were competent if you were deemed worthy you would hear the words come follow me If you were not competent and you were not worthy, you would hear the words, go and return to the work of your family. That's why Simon and Andrew and James and John are fishing, not studying. Because they didn't make the cut. Because they weren't worthy. And here's this group of people who are not worthy when all of a sudden along comes Jesus in this world radical countercultural act of grace he moves towards those who failed and he says come follow me and he invites them to follow him and they hear the words come follow me and they know what that means and they he invites them to follow apart from performance that's a thing called grace because the way that the culture worked was you you had to go and 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 pursue the rabbi so they dropped everything and when the grace of grip when the grace of jesus grips your heart and grips your mind you'll drop your nuts too when you understand who he is and you understand what he's offering, you'll drop your next two. And that's what Mark is giving us as you, as you just see these guys, they just drop everything and they go, we, we cannot believe, here we are, miserable failures who are hearing the words, come follow me. Yes, we will. That is radical grace. And so a relationship with the rabbi, obviously it came through performance evaluation, but the relationship with Jesus, for them and for you and I, it comes through gracious invitation. Every religious system is essentially teaching you in one way or another, here's how you have to be enough. The Christian faith is no Jesus is enough and we're with him. And so we know that these guys returned to fish again. We know they returned to their families again. It's not like they never fished and they never saw their families ever again. But that initial call of Jesus, it was disruptive. And the reason it was disruptive is because when you're called by Christ, the grace that he offers you, the grace of Jesus is forgiving and reorienting. It's both. The grace of Jesus is not, I forgive you, keep doing whatever you are up to. It's completely reorienting. It is disruptive. It is a drop your nets, leave everything, and make me the priority. Why? Not because our God is a narcissist who needs us, but because reorienting our hearts and our minds and in what we worship is how he liberates us. You see, we drop everything to follow the king, because here's the thing, friends. You all already have a king. I already had a king. Until we dropped everything to worship Christ the King. And so that is a forgiving grace. That is a reorienting grace. And without it, we continue to follow these little kings, whatever they are. And so when a rabbi would say to you, come follow me, those were words that that brought you into a life of imitation. And you grew to resemble them through hard work. When Jesus says, come follow me, the same grace that rescues you empowers your imitation. And so you grow to resemble Jesus, not simply through hard work, but by the Spirit's work. The same grace that rescues reforms. So the Christian faith is not an exercise in following good advice. From religious duty, we follow our king from renewal and from delight. This is why we follow him. In verse 22, that's why in verse 22 it says that when Jesus taught the scripture, it was with authority. And everybody said, this isn't like everybody else teaches it. Well, there's a reason for that. The word authority in the Greek, which is what Mark uses here, is archagos, And the archagos it means the original, the originator. The source. So what they were all saying was, it's like they were sitting down and having the story of their lives and the meaning of their lives taught to them by the one who authored them. It's like, for example, if you watch a film. So last night, booming through our house is Hans Zimmer. Dialed to 11. They're watching this film downstairs. Man of Steel is playing Dialed to 11. You just hear the, tra- the, the, the track is filling the house Now, if you watch that film again with the director's commentary on, see, the director is the one that envisioned it and crafted it and has insight into it. And so the director's commentary is a whole other thing. Because it's one thing for you to watch a film and go, this is what I think is happening, and this is what I think motivated this scene. And it's another thing to have the director say, this is why I shot it this way. This is why it looks this way. This is why the dialogue is this way. This is why the color correction is this way. This is why the score is this way. This is why everything this way. It's because of the great director. They have the archegos. It's like Jesus is... when." All of us are interpreting the scripture as faithfully as we can. I go back to the Greek, I go back to the Hebrew, I do the historical study, I put it together, I run it through my meat grinder, I throw some analogies in there so nobody falls asleep because nobody wants that much Greek that's early on a Sunday morning. And I'm trying to be faithful, but I'm still interpreting it. But when Jesus speaks, he's the one who authored it. And they're blown away by the archegos coming at them. It's like their hearts are leaping because the author is speaking to them. They're getting the director's commentary on the one who created the cosmos and so we don't have a king who just sits back in this power and authority we have a king who doesn't sit back in this power and authority and just tell us what needs to be done we have a king who uses power and authority to come to do what needed to be done your king graciously calls you he offers his perfect track record to you so that he can justify you so that he can unite himself to you and now from that freedom of already having his love and acceptance, your king calls you. He continually calls you. And he continually guides you and leads you. So Mark chapter one and two, it's like a curtain being raised and then having a single spotlight on Jesus uh, as this whole gracious narrative un- unfolds. Because first Jesus claims that he's God and then he immediately teaches with unparalleled authority because he's the author and the originator who is God and then he demonstrates his power over demons and sickness because he's God. That's how the text flows. Whoops. Hi. That's how the, sorry, you have an Italian pastor so there's a lot of hands moving here this morning. Okay, so that's how the text flows. Verses 23 through 40, that passage that I read where he's doing exorcisms and healings. What is that about? What is Jesus doing? The healings and the exorcisms, they show Jesus' hand because he knows that the powers of darkness and tragedy of sin and the inevitability of death have made everything go wrong. So he shows us that he's the king who's come, who will come again to make everything right. Every healing, every exorcism, it's a sign Signs don't point to themselves, he's pointing to something else. You know, in, throughout the Gospels you have 30 miracles that Jesus did, around 30 that are recorded. He did, he did scores more than that, but these are the ones that are written down. And they're all pointing to the exact same thing. Restoration is coming. When he heals the blind, when he heals the lame, when he heals the sick, when he heals the paralytic, when he casts out demons, everything is a sign That restoration is coming. The miracles of Christ are not some mystical suspension of the natural order. It's the restoration of the natural order. It's what was always supposed to be. But we live in a world of brokenness and all of us in our own ways are plagued in some way or another of the fallen and the brokenness uh, result of this world. So the signs of Christ point to his authority of who he is and what he has come to do and when he returns what he will do again. And this is what they point us to. Now, this future glorious restoration that's coming. Now listen, if Jesus was not king, and these were not historical accounts, which they are, if these were just legendary collocation of stories, which they're not, if that's all this was, then time itself is stripping away everything that matters to you. It's stripping away your health, it's stripping away your vitality, it's stripping away everybody that you love, and if, there's, if, if there was no Christ, no resurrection, and these signs are not true, and he's not who he said that he was, then one day the sun burns out and everything you say matters. It just does not matter because there'll be no trace in the universe that we were ever here. And that's not morbid, by the way. That's just rational. That's rational, logical thought process of if there's only a natural order. But if Jesus is king, which he is, If this is not just a legendary collocation of random stories, but that it's a historical account of a historical Jesus, which it is, what these signs tell us is that time is not stripping everything away from you, but the passage of time is actually reuniting you to your true hope. That one day your health will be perfect, that one day the world will be perfect, that one day every sorrowful sorrowful thing will be eradicated, that one day every glorious thing will be restored, that everything you like about being a human on planet earth will be perfected by his grace, and that everything that is sorrowful about being a human on planet earth will 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 be removed by his grace. This is what all of these signs are pointing to, the restoration of all things. This is what this means. The good news of the restoration of Christ the King, of what he is bringing. The life that we all want, but that it keeps evading us. The world that we wish we live in that's evading us. We want joy without the pain. We want generosity without the oppression. We want, the great liber- we want the great liberation of, of, of people groups everywhere without all of the, the travesty things that are, uh, you know, terrible things that are the exact opposite. This world we live in is a paradox. There's glorious and beautiful things here. I'm not being a pessimist at all. There's gl- glorious and beautiful things in the world. The sad thing is, unless, uh, unless you're willing to stick your head in the sand, never look at your news feed, don't look outside life out of, outside of cushy kitchen or Waterloo, life is hard and short, globally speaking. But the good news of the gospel and the Christian faith is the way that you get peace isn't by sticking your head in the sand and not thinking deeply about where everything is going. But the grace of the king, the miracles of Christ, they enable us to think very deeply about where everything is going and have hope rise in our hearts. So in the meantime, we don't just hide in our churches and say, well, bless the Lord for grace, I'm justified, the end. We're not inactive. We're following a king. His grace doesn't lead us into inactivity. His grace leads us into gracious activity. We're very passive in our relationship before God, and very active in our relationship towards our neighbors because of the grace of Christ and because of what he does. According to Micah 6, chapter 8, we now live to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. That's what the people of God do. That's what we do because from tremendous freedom, because Christ has done it all. We live these outward-facing, sacrificial lives of generous activity because we're following our king because that's what grace does in us after his gospel grips us so what is this gospel well in verse 40 there's a great picture of the gospel for those of you who are new I say what, what do we mean when, we, when Christians use this word gospel well I'll give you a picture of it in verse 40 it's the passage where the leper shows up and says Jesus if you're willing will you heal me and Jesus says I'm willing and he heals a leper Now, here's the thing about lepers <sighs> you didn't touch them it's a terrible disease. You didn't go near them. And Jesus could have healed the leper by saying, whoa, stay right there, filthy person. Like every other religious leader in the day. Stop right there, dead in your tracks. Gross and disgusting one. Which is how all the other religious leaders were related to lepers. Jesus doesn't say, well, stop right there. I'm the king of the universe. I don't need to touch your grossness. You're healed. He could have done that. And there's many instances where Jesus just spoke a word and people were healed. But here's this leper, and the Bible says, the text says, and he touched him. Something that nobody would ever do. You see, the high priest wouldn't touch you because you'd make them unclean. Nobody would touch a leper because you'd make them unclean. But Jesus touches the leper because Jesus is the great high priest who makes the unclean clean. He made you clean. He made me clean. (laughs) He's the God who wasn't afraid to come into the disgusting, unsanitary mess of the manger, come into the disgusting, unsanitary mess of our hearts in grace to save us. And what does this do? What does this grace do? It means now that we, we are now free to go into the disgusting and unsanitary mess that is other people's lives. And care for people and love people. as Why? Not to earn anything from God because we're following our king. Because that's what our king did. This is what grace does in a heart that's set free. We're all unclean and yet he comes to us and he makes us clean. We believe in the life, the perfect life of Jesus, the atoning death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus for our sins and that's the gospel. And that's what it is. And living with the outward-facing love of Jesus is what the gospel does. It empowers us to live this way. And so when you get to chapter 2, the, the 12 verses that I read there in chapter 2, the, the message of the Savior and the mission of the Savior, they collide in a point-of-no-return kind of way. That story that I concluded with about the paralytic coming through the ceiling, do you see the rhythm of grace moving here through these first two chapters? Here's the claim that I'm a divine king. Here's the power that I'm a divine king. Here's the authority that I'm a divine king. I'm going to authenticate all my claims so that nobody can do... And then he does something with a paralytic. He does something with a paralytic that is like a point of no return situation. If you've ever watched baseball, there's like a point of no return between third and home. You know, it's like you cross that and it's like you, you just can't... And sometimes get, guys get caught in the rundowns because they, they, they end up going back and forth, back and forth. When you coach little league baseball like me, it's hilarious. Rundowns are... Rundowns are hilarious. Kids... Past the point of no return, all the time, but you can still get a home run. <laughs> Passing the point of no return, like four four times around the bases, and still get a home run in little league baseball. This passage I am about to unfold for you. This is the point of no return for Jesus. Watch this. So, the paralytic is lowered through the roof, and imagine that first of all. Just imagine how disruptive this, <laughs> this was. It's amazing the the detail the scripture gives us. You are this par you are a paralytic, and you are being lowered down a ceiling. Um, that's terrifying. It's this ancient impromptu ingenuity. Hey, we got a way of getting him down there. Uh, don't worry, you're going to be fine. Don't imagine it, this smooth Mission Impossible Tom Cruise. You know, Jesus, will you heal me? Whoa, yeah, I'm right here. That's not how he was lowered. Uh, that's not how it worked. Uh, this was more of like a wily e. coyote, you know, Acme pulley system. I mean, this was this was crazy. And as this all happens. Jesus' reaction to this entire thing is nothing like, can you imagine if any of the Pharisees had been preaching when this happened? I mean, the moment that some debris would have just started coming through the ceiling, they'd have been off with his head. That's how they would have been. There's radical grace on display here, so watch this. So, you know that Jesus is the healer. You've heard about the miracles. You've heard about the exorcisms. So you come to get healed. And you. And you lower your buddy through the ceiling, and everybody's expecting to hear one thing you're healed. But that's not what they hear. They hear your sins are forgiven. Now let's just let that sink in for a second. What would have been going through your mind? Because I know what would have been going through my mind. Ah, uh, thanks. Also, though, I'm not sure how much I care about my sins being forgiven, because I don't know if you've noticed, Jesus, but I'm a paralytic, and I can't walk, and I kind of came here with one thing in mind, because I heard about the miracles, I heard about the demon castings, apparently you've got, you know, unlimited carbs going on, there's bread on tap, and there's wine on tap, and I came here because I was under the impression you were pretty in tune with people's needs. They don't, they don't get that. They get, they get your sins are forgiven. Oof. Now, this is how we all relate to Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is how you relate to God. If you're here and your faith is not in Christ, it's possible, it's possible this is one of your arguments against God. That God doesn't go around giving everybody what's obvious, what they obviously need. You look at it, the world and you're like, well, it's pretty honest. I mean, if I was God, this is what I would do, and it's not that hard, and he's not doing it, so therefore there's no God. First of all, you not thinking of a reason for something is not great logic for there not to be a reason. You've, all, you've, all you've done is said, I can't think of a reason, therefore one doesn't exist. Well, that's not a great way to understand a God of the cosmos. It just means he doesn't agree with your way of doing things. And so, this is the picture that we get. God, I need you to give me this. This is what I need. This is what I'm, This is my most... Glaring need. And Jesus teaches us here that the biggest problem in this life is not our suffering. It's our sin. I'll tell you why. Because sin is not just merely bad things you do. Oh, you sinned. You did a bad thing. What? Of course. But that, I mean, that's, like the, that's the end result. That's not the root of the problem. Sin is not the bad things that you do. Sin is the condition that humanity is born into. It's a condition. Sin is the condition that we're born into, which is precisely why... We have brokenness in this world, suffering in this world in every form. Sin is what's underneath it. Sin is the root cause of it. Sin is why, regardless of your worldview here this morning, whether you're a Christian or an agnostic, sin is why we all have a common enemy called death. You're going to die, I'm going to die. Why? Because our root problem is not that we needed a new set of legs. The real problem is there's this thing called sin that has got to get dealt with. Not just the bad thing you do today, the condition of humanity. It has to get dealt with. And Jesus teaches us this. When he says to this paralytic, I'm gonna go right after your deepest need and it's not your new set of legs. And he says, your sin is forgiven. But the paralytic's like the rest of us and he's thinking, well, if I only had this, I'd be happy. If I only had health, I'd be happy. If I could walk, I'd be happy. Then I'd be fulfilled in life. God, if you just give me this one thing, I'll be content. And we all have prayers like that. God, this one thing, if you just do this, God, I'd be content. But Jesus knows what we most deeply need. He knows what the soul most deeply need, needs. He knows that nothing we ever get will ever be enough if we don't get our deepest need met. The euphoria would not last. A new set of legs would not do it. The need in that man's soul was deeper. The need in our soul is deeper because the need in our, whole, uh, in our soul is ridiculously deep. And so... Genesis 3 teaches us, of course, that original sin, the sin under all sin, is to build this identity apart from God. And so, in favor of being our own God, that's why we tend to look at these small things and make them minimized and say, you know, that's the thing I need God to give me. And then life is really going to be okay. I mean, then I'll finally stop all of this incessant searching and I'll just be happy with life and I'll be content as soon as I have that. And the answer is no, no, we won't. What we learn through this exchange is that what we need in order to enjoy light, a life of lasting peace and pervasive joy and strength and weakness is to have our souls united with God himself. In church, that's what you and I get to enjoy because of Jesus Christ, our souls being united to, Christ, to God himself through Christ. And that's what's on display here through Jesus and this paralytic. God moving in mercy and undeserved favor to reunite someone to him who has no concept of how deeply their need actually goes how deep God's grace actually is and how full their soul can actually be. And so that's what we get. And then in a way that Jesus, only Jesus can, after he forgives his sins, in a way that only Jesus can, Jesus turns up the heat even more. And he senses the anger rising in the religious hearts. And they're just flipping furious as they're just, they're seething over this whole thing. They're like, oh, who, he says he can forgive sins and what's going on? So Jesus just dials it up. And in verse nine, Jesus says, oh, hey guys, I got a question. Which is easier? To say sins are forgiven or rise up, take up your bed and walk? And he flattens the room with this question. Oh my goodness. Because what he's implying is, is is really infuriating for these religious leaders. And I'm going to explain to you kids this way. They're, they're losing their minds that he said, your sins are forgiven, and here's why. For the kids that are in here, so you get this. Let's say after the service, I'm so excited to get out of here because after-church hunger is a serious thing. And when the preacher goes long, like this dude tends to do, I got one more minute, oh boy, can he do it? And I just, I got to get out of here, Kids. So I get in my car and I don't look behind me. I don't look at anything. I drive like a good Italian. I just pull my rear view mirror off and I throw out the window because what's behind me doesn't matter. And I just back up, bang, into your car. Bang, and the grill goes in and the fluid leaks on the ground and the windows smash out. And you look at me and you're hungry too because the preacher's been preaching long and after church hunger is a real thing and you want to get home. And you say to me, hey Paul, it's okay. We forgive you. I forgive you. You can go. Let's just all go home. See, it's not okay. Do you want, do you want to know what's not okay? It's not your car. So you can't forgive me. Because I, 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 my sin wasn't against you. So you can say you forgive me, but you, can't, you don't have any power to forgive me because I smashed your parents' car. Your parents have to forgive me. Which is a sermon for another day. Forgiveness. But you can't. So you see, the fact that Jesus looks at this paralytic in front of all these religious Pharisees and he says, Your sins are forgiven. What Jesus is saying is, Your sin, your sin, your sin, your sin, all your sin is against me. Because I'm God. And I forgive you. And they lose it. And that's why Jesus says, Oh, that was difficult? Okay, then which is easier then? And so then we know where this story goes. Then he heals the guy. So there's a spiritual healing. First, he heals his, mo- his deepest need, which is the healing of his sin, and to be united with God. And then he heals his physical problem as a sign that, hey, the one who comes and forgives sin is the same one that's restoring everything. See, in this one act, Jesus says, I'm the Lord of creation and recreation. I'm it. It's all about me. It's all revolving around me. The only way for your life to make sense is to revolve around me. The only way for your heart to be at peace and to have a lasting sense of joy and for your mind to be at ease and for you to wake up in the morning and make sense of the crazy world that you live in and have rest in a world that is at unrest, the only way is for you to place your faith in me, is for you to trust in me and trust who I am. Jesus separates himself from every other person in Israel's history who did miracles. Because you know there are a lot of miracles. Like, Jesus is doing miracles, but he's, there's a long track record of other people who did miracles. That's why he says, oh, which is easier then? Because there's a lot of miracle workers, but maybe I should just make a distinction so you know that I'm, you can't just categorize me with all the other miracle workers. So I forgive sin. That's your real problem. Radical act of grace from, from the King of Grace. He heals the man spiritually and physically. When Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven, the divine claim, that puts him on a path to the cross. That's the point of no return. The moment he said that, it's like, okay, well, this guy, we got to do something about this guy. The moment he opened his mouth and said that, it put him on a path to the cross so that we could be forgiven. Because that's what we need most deeply. You all walked in here thinking you have bigger needs, all of you did. Because I do it all the time too. I'm not, just, I'm not preaching down to you. I'm one of you. Jesus is the head of the church, not me. I'm the one that drew the short straw that gets to preach Jesus to you. But all of us wake up every day thinking, like, this is what I need most. And Jesus says, I'm here to un- un- unite you to me, church, and find your peace and your hope in me. I forgive all your sin. And we're like, that's really nice. Grace is great. I'm trying not to yawn at grace because I really need this. You don't understand. This is why he gives us every seven days to come and recalibrate our hearts and our minds and our souls to the goodness of his grace so that we can rest. He is what we need most deeply. And the paralytic having his sins forgiven, it showcases why Christ came. And then getting up and walking on fresh legs, it forecasts what's going to happen when Christ the King comes again. He came to deal with our biggest problem by the power of his rescuing grace. And he will make all things new and he will raise us from death to enjoy it by the power of restoring grace. Let's pray.